This is the Urban Political, the podcast on urban theory, research, and activism. Hi, you are listening to Urban Political. I'm Hossein Hamdiye, and I will be your host for this episode. I am actually old enough to remember the 1996 overtake of Kabul by the Taliban that led to waves of Afghan refugees washing over the city I lived in, Tehran. It was a bloody, stretched conflict that only exacerbated after years of civil war, which of course was followed by the U.S. invasion and its fiasco of unceremonious departure. As Iran took around two million Afghan asylum seekers, social earthquakes followed. I can remember the unfamiliar faces, the unconventionally different dress code, the notoriety of certain neighborhoods for the community making of refugees in them, and the usual outworn rush to accuse the migrants whenever a gruesome crime took place. It was rather my first en- encounter with "quote unquote" the other stepping on my doorstep. Yet it was not the last. For human suffering and forced migration barely stops, and for that, as a student and a migrant myself residing in Germany, I also have lived through the 2014 so-called refugee crisis, as well as the aftermath of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Yes, I probably, like many of you listening to this episode, have seen many such incidents. Incidents that habitually are followed by the demonization of refugees, scapegoating them for, let's say, whatever goes amiss. We are therefore all too familiar with the politicization of the question of forced migration itself. One as recently as past few months, with Rwanda's scheme in the UK, the Muslim ban in the US, and the rise of AfD in Germany or far right in France and Holland. However, I have witnessed, as again you too probably have, the the compassion, the solidarity, and affection given to refugees and all those who found little option but to flee from persecution, war, climate disaster, and countless other unfortunate conditions that makes one's life in her own home unbearable. We all can remember people gathering in Frankfurt, Munich. And Hamburg's Hauptbahnhof to welcome the war-stricken. We do remember protests, mass gatherings, the signs hung behind the windows to denounce the dehumanization of refugees, and countless families took in Ukrainians before they could find permanent residency. We remember the giving, hosting, embracing, and naturalizing. We do remember the host society forcing itself to acculturate to new shapes of living, and we do remember hope. Yes, there were and still are heinous facets of hate, but there are hopes too. And in this episode, we are going to talk about the latter.
listening to Imagine by John Lennon, a track that remains relevant even today, if not always. To dive a tad deeper into the idea of solidarity and how it shadows urban discussion, here I will be joined by Dr. Martin Jorgensen, the co-author of Solidarity and the Refugee Crisis in Europe. He is a professor at the Department of Culture and Learning, Aalborg University, and also Daniel Goigoy, a researcher at University College Dublin. First, I will start with you, Martin. Thank you for giving us your time. Uh, you and your colleague Oscar Augustin tried to explore the phrase "refugee crisis" in your recommendable book, which is, of course, an interesting read, pregnant with captivating ideas. Please elaborate on what this phrase "refugee crisis" actually means and what sort of discussions the arrival of asylum seekers had ignited back in 2014. Yes, uh, thanks. And uh, first of all, thanks for having me as one of the guests in this uh, episode. Appreciate it. Um, well, um, as you also started out by saying in your um, introduction to this program, I mean, this is not the first time, of course, we have seen um, uh, the arrival of thousands of people in uh, in need of protection and so on. Um, but in 2014, uh, and, and what later was called the um, the long summer of migration, uh, we saw um, a very high number coming in, especially from uh, um, from Turkey crossing the Mediterranean and coming to, to Greece and so on. And that uh, spurred different uh, discussions uh, around Europe, of course, uh, and many of them also then were tied up to this notion of, uh, of refugee crisis. Um, so I'm, I'm not disputing what what we saw was a crisis, of course. I mean, anyone, uh, yeah, who remember those years uh, will say it was crisis. What we try to problematize in the book is uh, the notion of refugee crisis itself, because because it also comes with a number of connotations, especially um, from political side, right? About the uh, nation state, the member states, and so on, uh, being crisis due to uh, refugees. So what we do in uh, in the first chapter of that book uh, is try to to uh, unpack or debunk this notion of uh, of refugee crisis and 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 sort of investigate a little bit. I mean, what kind of crisis are we actually talking about? Because there are many other ways of framing what we saw in those years. I mean, it, we can easily depict it as a, as a kind of uh, democratic crisis, as a crisis of solidarity, as a crisis of sort of uh, institutional uh, support and so on and so forth and and and, and we try to go through a number of these um, yeah of these we could say alternative readings of uh, of, uh, of of crisis escape in the book um, in many ways um, it only became a, a crisis uh, for all of uh, uh, Euro- European uh, member states especially once uh, uh, refugees started moving up through the Balkan corridor and so on. So suddenly it became not only a problem for uh, Greece, especially in Italy, uh, when they were mainly staying there, it was not really perceived to be a crisis in, for instance, Denmark, where I'm living. It was only when they started walking on the Danish highways towards uh, Sweden uh, that that suddenly everyone talked about the crisis and so on, right? Um, staying within the Danish context, we can also say that, uh, well, if we remember back to, I mean, I'm, I'm even older than you, I think. <laughs> uh, 
so I can remember when uh, uh, the Yugoslavian nation state uh, collapsed and uh, we saw lots of refugees coming out of Yugoslavia. In Denmark, we received more refugees from Yugoslavia in uh, in the early 90s that we did of Syrian refugees uh, during the uh, refugee crisis, but no one talked about refugee crisis at that time, right? So there's something particular, of course, connected to this to this crisis uh, that has to do with uh, with many things, which I think we're also going to uh, to discuss uh, during the episode with the difference between uh, Ukrainian uh, refugees and, and what we saw then. So basically, to coming to an answer, sorry for for sort of uh, going around this in uh, in a longer way. I mean, I don't think uh, there is anything uh, such thing per se as a refugee crisis, but it 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 becomes a refugee crisis when characterized by such uh, repeatedly by by politicians talking about. Uh, a state of exemption uh, uh, urgency and, uh, and and basically calling for rights to sort of uh, put normal democratic uh, uh, incentives and and and, and basically uh, rules out of play to to deal with what was perceived to be uncontrollable and so on yeah interesting i mean uh, there is a lot to chew on in your in your unpacking of the idea of refugee crisis but i want to know how would you then Uh, typologize forms of solidarity. What kind of observation you had in the face of 2014 crisis, so to speak? Yeah. Um, so, uh, as you also again going back to your own introduction, I mean, uh, it's not only a, a tale of uh, of despair and bleakness and so on, because uh, what we also saw was exactly this uh, welcoming of uh, of uh, people uh, on the move and so on in all across Europe. I mean. Uh, Uh, in Germany, I mean, there's been a survey showing uh, an exceptional high number, for instance, were part of the uh, the solidarity movement, sometimes only in, in, you know, handing out a bottle of water and so on at a train station, and other times housing people for, for days, weeks and so on, before they, they moved on and so on. And we saw this uh, all over Europe and... Uh, So uh, in the work I, I did together with Oscar, we we tried to um, get theorize about these forms of solidarity because they they took quite um, different forms and also uh, implied different forms of politics. So uh, so in the book we we pointed to uh, a distinction between three different types of solidarity. Um, which are seen as, uh, it's not like a sort of uh, that one will develop into the other and so on. So there's three distinct forms, right? And they can coexist and so on. But firstly, we um, discussed the idea of autonomous solidarity, uh, a kind of uh, of solidarity uh, taking place bottom-up, often um, without the involvement, collaboration with any authorities, uh, I mean, basically being against it and and... And based on the belief that uh, that uh, we ourselves, the ones part of this kind of solidarity work, can establish the social and political structure that can serve as, a, as an alternative uh, to uh, yeah, restrictive uh, uh, policies from uh, local authorities, national authorities, European authorities, and so on. Then we talked about uh, like a broader uh, form of solidar- solidarity that we see in civil society, which we termed uh, civic solidarity. Yeah, I mean, stemming from civil society itself, it's um, we could say a less uh, a radical form of polda- uh, sorry of solidarity in the sense that uh, it often can coexist with uh, or in collaboration with uh, local authorities. For instance, we've seen that with many of the uh, national versions of the Welcome Refugee Movement, uh, where uh, people. Um, 
in solidarity with newcomers uh, help out with uh, like uh, you know basic stuff as uh, as simply accommodating welcoming people but also uh, engaging in uh, language classes uh, offering uh, clothes uh, stuff like that um, um it's not necessarily in uh, intention with uh, um with the authorities although it can be so that's something perhaps to be discussed there but it's more like uh, forms of solidarity that can collaborate with ngos and so on in uh, uh, in civil society and the last form we talked about is is uh, what we call institutional solidarity uh, where we've seen uh, not only in europe but that's what we focus on uh, uh, local cities um, trying to step up and 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 basically saying but we can do this we can do this in a better way i mean we can actually establish the social structure uh, support people in need uh, uh, so standing in intention with uh, again uh, very restrictive uh, national uh, forms of uh, of politics and legislation so in the book we we try to give different examples on these uh, three different forms of solidarity yeah interesting uh, let's dig deeper into each category uh in your book you discuss hotel city plaza in athens Uh, an autonomous local initiative for uh, hosting the refugees for those who did not read the book. Having that in mind, uh, how do you frame what happened in Hotel City Plaza, especially against the broader, so to speak, discussion about border and uh, and because, as as I do understand, it is at the forefront of where refugees are coming from. Like Athens is like the 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 first place that they put step in. So in that term, it has like. A sort of different character meshed into it. Can you please explain the case of Hotel City Plaza for us? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, as, as as you say rightly, then uh, Athens, especially in those years, but still, um, it's the case though. It's the central hub for for newly arrived uh, refugees having crossed the Mediterranean. So basically, any uh, person crossing the Mediterranean will sooner or later get through Athens. That's uh, That's how it's been. Uh, in the um, in the early days of the refugee crisis, uh, uh, the Greek government, I mean, tried to to deal with the um, with with the problem of uh, refugees as they've done before. Um, they set up uh, uh, yeah camps and so on, uh, different places in and outside the city and so on, but with very poor conditions. I mean, uh, um, it was very. I mean. temperature was high there was not enough uh, basic uh, supplies and so on and so forth so um Athens has a long story of uh, leftist and uh, also anarchist uh, forms of activism and uh, political engagement and those resources were also uh, reactivated during the refugee crisis uh, so uh, a lot of people in solidarity refugees uh, said again okay so this is not okay we can do something better than this so different places around the city uh, vacant buildings were occupied and one of these was an uh, abandoned hotel the owner had uh, more or less fled to the US to avoid uh, paying back taxes uh, so uh, the hotel was there with fully equipped with beds and everything so um a, a bunch of political activists uh, took over the uh, the place and and opened it up for uh, for yeah arriving uh, uh, asylum seekers uh, 
uh, which um, were housed in the hotel, but not as hotel guests, because the whole idea was to create some kind of cohabitation, that all people shared the work mutually and so on. So it was very much a political project, and also some uh, a project that took uh, some some learning, because some, I mean, asylum seekers basically also believe, well, I mean, there should be some services and so on. So, I mean, such a project uh, takes time to uh, um, to set up and uh, get everyone on the same mindset, but they succeeded, right? And uh, uh, so it became a place of, uh, of safety uh, and um, sort of everyday forms of uh, yeah of, of, of solidarity, right? With uh, kindergarten, school, language classes, uh, uh, hair salons, all kind of stuff going on at the same time, as well as political uh, discussions and so on. So um, the city plaza, in a way, uh, send a message to the uh, not only the uh, local authorities in Athens and uh, and the Greek state, but also to the European uh, migration regime that. Uh, I mean, uh, we can basically do better. They were not they were not saying that the solution to the refugee crisis was that we should simply squat our way out of uh, everything, right? But they showed how uh, it's actually possible with very few means to set up something that is far better than uh, than was being offered the uh, uh, asylum seekers in, in not only in Greece, but also other places in Europe, right? Um, so it lasted for a number of years and then um, a number of squads in Athens were closed down, and before this would happen in uh, in Athens or in City Plaza, the uh, the people living there decided simply to 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 close it down and get people uh, placed other places instead of uh, going through a, a you know a traumatic eviction and so on. So it started, uh, uh, or it stopped in a very sort of uh, nice way. In a way, it would be nicer to have it, of course, but uh, they decided themselves when uh, time was over to uh, to stop this experiment and. Uh, uh, yeah, and uh, and basically uh, let the world know what kind of uh, experiences of solidarity and so on could be learned from this. Interesting. I mean, I do understand the, dif- the differences that you um, elaborated about the, so to speak, civic solidarity and these form of bottom-up uh, autonomous form of solidarity. But can you more elaborate on that for us, please? Especially, uh, what does the experience of Venlibone if I pronounce the Danish words correctly, tells us in that regard. How do you defend these two from each other? Um, I mean, uh, I don't really think we can talk too much about state-led uh, uh, solidarity, to, to be honest. I mean, um, accepting that, that people are in the country, I mean, from the perspective of the state, is not the same as solidarity in the uh, in my opinion, I mean, it's uh, if we look at the discourse at the time uh, um, about the uh, Syrian refugees. Uh, in the beginning, there were this uh, kind of almost optimism from the business sector and the politicians. Oh, Syrians are well educated, and this could actually be a solution to a to a problem, and so on. And then, when people arrived, uh, suddenly they did not necessarily have the education that that people had expected, and 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 they were problematized as uh, so many times before, and so on. Um, so, so the discourse was was rather uh, how can we uh, make sure that not uh, too many uh, choose to apply for asylum in Denmark? So we rather see this kind of preventive measures and so on uh, um, to basically have people apply for asylum elsewhere. So, uh, but that said, of course, when people are uh, applying for asylum in Denmark, it comes with a set of rights and uh, social services and so on. Um, uh, but. It, 
that doesn't necessarily uh, include any kind of, uh, you could say, uh, I mean, recognition and, uh, and and friendliness and so on. And that's that's what a, a movement like Venliborne, um, this kind of welcome refugee movement, then tried to offer. So people are here, they should also be respected and, and met with uh, friendliness and uh, simply, uh, uh, you know, part of a collective. Uh, and that was what they try to do include people as as people uh, not only um, characterizing people as uh, you are a certain refugee but rather you are a teacher uh, you used to teach in the Damascus area and so on and you can help uh, here and there and, and so on so it's an attempt to uh, more create a, a collective uh, we and sense of belonging and uh, uh, criminality and so on uh, and I think that's very different from from uh, the state-led uh, kind of services that more has to do with, uh, uh, you know, putting people in a in a integration program and so on once they have had their claim for asylum recognized. This is uh, much more, uh, you know, eye to eye and and trying to include people as uh, as uh, yeah as uh, as human beings and uh, and so on. That said, I mean. Uh, it can also, uh, that kind of uh, um, uh, civil engagement can also be almost exploited because in some places it also became a cheap alternative for municipalities basically to, you know, hand over services they otherwise would have to provide because uh, you had this suddenly this uh, quite big uh, uh, group of people who wanted to do good, who wanted to assist and help and so on. So there's always a risk, of course, of, uh, of a kind of cooptation and so on and what is perhaps having more political potential becomes basically uh, a kind of uh, unpaid service providers. So, um, uh, but, but still, I think there's something, uh, yeah, there's some interesting and uh, rewarding experiences also for this kind of movement. Uh, you know, funny that you should mention the state. I mean, we all, we most of all would have this idea of a state as these stony-faced bureaucrats in their offices behind the, their desks and everything. But according to the book, the scheme Solidarity Cities may well be understood as a political try to, so to speak, um, to translate solidarity into conscious institutional decision-making. Did that work? I mean, can you tell us about the case of Barcelona hosting the oncoming refugees and the way such institutional political decisions uh, reshape the city? Uh, yeah, I can try at least. Um, so um, I think, first of all, one experience is that um, that it's perhaps easier for for national elected politicians to sort of uh, call for restrictions and uh, and say we shouldn't have more of this group and that group and so on. But uh, if you go to the cities, I mean, people people are basically there, right? I mean, so you cannot. I mean, it's not a it's not a like an abstraction. I mean, you have people living coming to the city and so on. You need to do something about it. Um, so whether it's based on uh, on uh, you know uh, political visions of uh, wanting to to create more inclusive society or, or more pragmatist uh, underpinning because I mean you need to do something because I mean basically we have something here we need to deal with uh, is a discussion uh, of course uh, on its own but what we saw in in uh, in Barcelona in uh, in 15 uh, was definitely a deliberate uh, attempt to create a more inclusive structure for also uh, uh, housing uh, newcomers i mean not only uh, asylum seekers but migrants uh, refugees undocumented at large um again there is a longer story to this because uh, um 
at the time uh, Barcelona was uh, was led by Barcelona and Como, this uh, um, yeah civic platform of uh, of, uh, of sort of coming from the social movements of uh, 2008 during the financial crisis and so on, when we saw a lot of uh, mobilization against the uh, austerity measures and so on, that also set up uh, alternative social political structures and so on. Um, that platform gained power in Barcelona and one of the first things they did was basically to say, okay, we can also do better when it comes to uh, to creating uh, inclusive uh, structures for, for refugees, migrants. So they rebranded uh, uh, Barcelona as the uh, refugee city. Um, um, but not only in this course, because they actually uh, initiated a number of uh, of uh, of uh, deep political uh, policies and sort of reorganizations, I mean, trying to uh, connect to already existing initiatives in civil society, trying to say that this can only work if uh, people are participating. So, for instance, one thing was not wanting to have people living in camps, but instead uh, supporting and initiating that uh, refugees were placed uh, alongside uh, regular people in in flats and so on. So we saw a lot of these kind of... uh, attempts to um, to use uh, already uh, existing uh, progressive uh, frameworks to to also include the uh, yeah the uh, yeah the uh, the people arrived as uh, as refugees they also uh, tried to um, establish networks with, with similar minded uh, cities you can say so uh, i mean initiating the solidarity city network across europe together for instance with uh, athens paris and and so on uh, and other spanish cities who who were working from the same beliefs uh, um so uh, there was a quite progressive uh, movement uh, also uh, outside europe uh, uh, those years um the question is of course uh, it, it, did it work i mean um I think the experiences of the time uh, are valuable, even though that uh, we may not find um, that many other cities that uh, reacted like uh, like Barcelona. Um, also, the whole uh, idea of municipalism, which also runs strong in the case of Barcelona, that uh, yeah, the centrality of the look of the locality and so on, and and uh, being able to uh, develop. Uh, uh, alternative frameworks have been a little bit uh, challenged in especially in the last election in Spain where we saw a lot of the uh, cities with uh, more progressive uh, constitutions uh, turning towards the right and so on so right now i mean um, the idea of a very progressive localism or municipalism perhaps is a little bit challenged but i think the experiences still stand there as as something uh, for the future and uh, i'm not prepared to uh, declare the idea of solidarity cities dead at all i still think it's uh, uh, it it's it's a response to uh, to still more restrictive uh, national regimes and so on and hopefully um, we'll see a uh, Resurface of these kinds of uh, of, of local attempts to uh, to create alternatives again. Thank you, Martin. That was Martin Jorgensen, professor at the Department of Culture and Learning, Alberg University. I thank him for his insight. We will for sure come back to you later. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,
That was I'm Talking to You by Afghan singer Goga. Now, we turn to some more recent events after the Russian aggressive attack on Ukraine, a turn of events that was met with rather more, let's say, cordial acceptance. The narrative, framing, and endurance were largely different, whilst difficulties caused by standing up to Russians were too much heavier to bear and felt more intimately by Europeans. My next guest, Daniel Gogoi, is a researcher at University College Dublin. He focuses on the micropolitics of welcoming the other, with a focus on Ukrainian refugees hosted by ordinary citizens in Munich and Dublin. Daniel, it's great to have you here. Please tell us about your work, which I believe would shape your PhD dissertation. We might guess the whole package of foreign culture, language, and congenital ethnic difference can cause unease for some people. So please tell us, what were, according to your work, the social ramification of mass migration as Ireland accepted Ukrainians fled from war? Well, first off, also thank you very much for having me here. It's a it's a pleasure to be able to share some of the first preliminary findings of my PhD research which I've been engaged in over the last three years. And um, to not spoil the answer to your question too soon, but I can tell you one thing, it spawned a lot of social change and uh, ongoing social change as people who have been reading news on what is happening currently in Ireland, been familiar with, there was just last week, um, an ongoing riot in the city center of Dublin, which is related to migrations and of course also solidarities. Now with February 2022 happening and the Russo-Ukrainian war erupting, for me it was relatively clear that I will have to and I would want to like to do something in regards to the war and the efforts of individuals uh, forming bonds of solidarity across national borders. It is important to mention that of the roundabout 98 thousand people that arrived since February 2022. 73,000 are currently still um, accommodated in what is called state provision homes in Ireland, while the others are taken in by individuals. And uh, as uh, Martin already alluded to, great case studies for what is considered a bottom-up approach to solidarity here. With such a small country as Ireland, the distribution of the migrants, of course, or of the Ukrainians now is relatively skewed. We do see that there's around about 6,000 people in the greater Dublin area, which is a metropolitan area that is already heavily and densely populated and was by the beginning of this year already lacking substantial amount of living space with about 3,000 uh, accommodation spaces, too few even for people already seeking to rent or by housing. It is interesting to note that the people who actually host the Ukrainians are predominantly of a higher socioeconomic strata with being on average 60 years of age and older and occupying an average of six room houses uh, by having two adults living in there. So a lot of unused accommodational space that these people already possessed just to point towards um, who the people were that I also interviewed. First off, and this is a very fascinating one to share, that expectations versus reality seem to have been on a diverging path when we 
look into what hosts actually expected of people that they would host here. So predominantly we found out that people expected Ukrainians to arrive at the porch with nothing but the clothes on their bodies, holding two Aldi bags full of clothes and that about it. So I guess you can imagine that when the people from Ukraine arrived, that many Irish hosts were rather flabbergasted, to say the least, that these people actually, many of them still follow their jobs, their occupations in Ukraine or internationally. They continue to have an income on the site. And not only that, but they also enjoy finer things in life, as some of my interviewees have shared with me. They kind of uh, have an issue or they find it difficult to accept that people they host are eating expensive foods such as mussels or lobsters and go shopping for luxury items while they were prepared to basically help people who have nothing left. Um, that being said, on one side of expectations versus reality, now you also ask about the cultural uh, challenges or changes related to cultural challenges. I suppose one thing that becomes rather apparent, and that is also something already I can hint to in Munich, the first three to four interviews I've conducted, sharing similar insights. When it comes to sharing local spaces, basically your own accommodation, the housing space that people share, there seems to be issues taken around ritualized practices, such as the preparation of foods, the usage of the kitchen, the washing facilities, the times attached to that. So while people generally were prepared to host others in their homes for an, at most cases, indefinite amount of time, they seem to have not uh, adjusted or estimated the amount of time they would have to share the kitchen with these people be such an issue. Another point of ongoing uh, debate we found was also the, the raising of the kids. And that is a particularly interesting one if we consider how much raising of children is also colored by, by cultural practices, by socio-historical practices and na nation-state education regimes. And so in this particular case, we've seen that um, Irish people do not really appreciate the fact that Ukrainian kids in their teens, I have to say, spend a lot of time on their computers. Now, that being said, it is at this stage, as this is a preliminary analysis, not completely clear if this is truly something we can attribute to cultural differences, or if this is also something more attributed to generational differences. As I already mentioned, right, people hosting Ukrainians being on average in their 60s, while the Ukrainians coming being on average in their 30s, mid 30s, with relatively young kids. These kids often still getting schooling from uh, schools in Ukraine. And now to the last two points that you mentioned on language and the general uh, changes related to this whole migration spiel. Fascinatingly enough, when it came to the point of language, it doesn't seem to be an, an ongoing issue as technological devices have opened doors basically in our own homes. Um, at the table, people who do not talk the same language are now able to communicate freely and comfortably with apps and the likes of that. That being said, on the other side, when it comes to the bureaucratic apertures, we found that there is much more work that needs to be done as many of these 
papers that need to be processed while being maybe written in Russian might not be accessible for everybody who's reading and writing in Ukraine, Ukrainian. And also not every host has the time um, to facilitate these visits at the municipalities, which can at times be very lengthy. So that has been an issue that there is a lack of state facilitated capacities in Ireland, basically, which, as Martin already alluded to, states, while they might not be the builder or the building blocks of solidarities, we found that they certainly can impede um, and hinder the development of solidarities. And I will get to that in a moment when I talk about the current cases that are rising in Dublin since last week. So this is all very fresh off the press and hasn't really found its way into my analysis. But I do feel it is something that we should address and hopefully we can address in a moment together. So before we get to that, maybe on the nicer note of things, the em emerging networks, and that is something Martin also referred to as the bottom up and even the civic solidarities. We do see that in the case of Ireland beautifully emerging in many different ways by, for example, <laughs> the lack of capacities of civic solidarities, which were flagship by the Red Cross who pledged to help everybody who would arrive, but unfortunately was substantially lacking the capacities, which led people to fill in the roles and taking up the mantles themselves to go online and via Facebook and neighborhood networks and neighbors basically found people that they ultimately host and hosted in some cases. Not only that, we did see also that there was a form of um, institutionalization, formalization of some of these networks. So one of the great example cases here is the Helping Irish Host organization that emerged basically as a Facebook-led initiative of a few folks wanting to help and now developed into a full-blown um, NGO. And then of course, we, we cannot forget the great deal of work that was done also by faith-based services in the first instances, which were predominantly related to uh, collecting donations and more material goods, but also providing spaces for people to come together and share. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, back to your point about the, the people and the bottom of solidarity shown by the ordinary people are, in fact, happened to attend your presentation at the International Sociology Association Conference in Melbourne. That's where we first met. And if I'm not much mistaken, you have recorded reasons narrated by participants as to why people accepted refugees on their turf. Here's, uh, here's a snippet of one of your interviewees. Well, God, I haven't done anything except look after myself and look after, well, look after the family and... We were all set up, so I thought, well, well, I'd go out and do a job like that. And then I thought, I didn't have the nerve. I didn't feel that it was in me to do what my mother had done. So as the family felt a little bit um, of a failure, in a way. I mean, it wasn't consciously in my head, but I sort of when I thought, what a, what a selfish existence we were leave, leading, I thought... God, I could change things here and I thought about it and did nothing about it. The war came in um, Ukraine. Uh, I was thinking, God, and I was really, I was in tears, like literally it made me cry, imagining seeing 
and people have said to me, was it because they were white and you could relate? And maybe it, I don't think it was because I've always thought I've always been sympathetic and empathetic with people who have done nothing and yet misery is poured on top of them, whether it's losing your home or a war or earthquake or whatever. So I was always conscious of it and I genuinely did think of Afghanistan. But anyway, this all happened and I was in tears and I said, I have to do something here. Uh, okay, that was a really interesting thing uh, to hear. Was there any theme shared by all these folks about the reasons behind their accepting outsiders into their, so to speak, private space of home? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great question, and of course, also one that has driven me in this whole research endeavor. And as I said, this is an ongoing analysis as this is a, a huge amount of um, text data, as you can imagine, having 30 interviews, each of around 30 pages of transcript. But initial analyses of the Dublin sample have in fact shown certain similarities in these biographic accounts. And again, this is where biographic um, methodologies shine in all their beauty because they allow us to look much, much deeper than into the, these elements and factors of people's lives than just the mere superficial answers of interviews. So some of the points I can share with you, and I hope we can pick them up in the conversation after as well, is in terms of themes that strung themselves through our interviewees and their accounts, where that there were religious values, of course, with Ireland being, uh, oh, has been for the last century a predominantly Christian Catholic country and uh, that embody, embodying particularly sets of values which in cosmopolitan theoretical literature often relates to a shared sense of universal love uh, and hospitality have been embedded in spite of the fact that we do see a strong decline in actual um, people attending ceremonies or worshipping in churches, we do see that these values have been transmitted from previous generations into this particular generation that is hosting now. And I will get to that in a moment, why we do see in Ireland these strong legacy effects or generational effects of passing on certain elements and uh, behaviours. Another one of these similarly linked to hosting behaviors themes was the national identity and i think um it it becomes rather apparent that in the course of the irish national identity formation which is an ongoing process ireland itself was positioned and has positioned itself against england which used to be the colonial superpower oppressing people in ireland for far too long and in this in this formation of identity against an oppressor, we do find that generations that in fact preceded our generation of hosts now has grown up under certain circumstances that required them to be open to the other, to be open um, in terms of sharing solidarities across their social networks. Some of the interviewees referred to this as having an open door at home, you know, just you help each other where you can against this 
shared superpower oppressor. And this is to a degree also mirrored in the ongoing conflict of Russia and Ukraine, where Russia as the great international superpower basically just wages this war against the much smaller Ukraine. And um, so that being one of the other points, then of course the, the socioeconomic developments that were strongly linked itself to this um, this historic period of oppression. As I already said, people mentioned that their parents basically to make ends meet had to share and form bonds of solidarity across their own kin relations. And not only that, many Irish people, as we've seen throughout history, have left the country, but later come back to, um, to reestablish these kind of connections of solidarity. But whilst they were away, of course, they're also being othered in the Americas, so to say, or in other parts of Europe. So these economic elements of um, oppression, but also later on in the mid 90s until the late 2000s, the boom and bust, the Celtic tiger that again has pushed Irish people out of their own country to strangers' shores, but coming back again, have definitely left some form of uh, imprint on the biographies, not only of the people hosting, but again, of the people who preceded the families and the social groups preceding the people hosting. And lastly, as I already mentioned at several stages, the life stages of the peoples themselves. So our hosts being in their mid sixties on average have to a great deal also discussed throughout their biographies that there is an inherent desire to pick up the mantle of what they have basically through these legacies, legacy effect of their parents and the generations before taken in to now at this stage of their life where they where they actually having the financial capital to support these causes of um, social solidarity to do that to the best of their abilities and to the greatest extent. Oh uh, yeah, uh, the thing is about your, your work, you mentioned some reasons behind people accepting others into their homes, but before they come, they the, the people of Ireland, for sure, the people who, who, who whom you talk to had a general idea of refugees. But how this how hosting these refugees began to reshape the image of of what refugee is, especially after the experience of close physical proximity and cohabitation? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is a fascinating point that came to to the forefront in many of the interviews. As I said already, there was a somewhat shaped image of what a refugee is and how they have to look and uh, how they have to dress and what they can't eat or what you know they should not do. So in that sense, I think what became relatively clear is that people had to rethink and reconsider and reconceptualize what a, a modern day refugee on the fringes of Europe can also look like in spite of what has been given to us through uh, state-owned and state-run news outlets and medias over the past decades, in spite of the hearsays and the, the populist and far-right polemics. And so in that sense, there is a reconfiguration, I would say, 
that's taking place in the minds of people as to what refugees in our day and age can also look like. But as I also said at the very beginning of this part, this is an ongoing process. And as people now start to recognize that many of the Ukrainian refugees, in fact, might be economically and socioeconomically be on par with them themselves, it also comes with new questions that it opens up as to why should these people deserve more help than us? And why should they deserve more solidarity than, let's say, other groups? which, for example, in the Irish case, there is an ongoing issue around what they call provisional homes, where people in the long summer of migration kind of were put into and unfortunately in many cases still remain to this day, you know, wait, awaiting in a form of asylum, as, asylum limbo, um, bureaucratic limbo, their fates. And so all of these somewhat more... Uh, complex relations, I'd say, these complex realities now starting to merge and reshape also an understanding of who is and who's not deserving of solidarity. And as last week's riots in Dublin have shown, this process is most certainly not at an end. It's ongoing. And if anything, it's just at a, at a high, height or peaking point. Okay, and lastly, in what way the presence of Ukrainian refugees reconfigured the neighborhood in which they resided in, in terms of like the urban impact of them being around? What was that? How, did you did you notice anything? Yeah, I mean, I suppose the, in the most uh, banal way, they reconfigurated the neighborhoods by becoming somewhat of a central focal point of a neighborhood. You know, if there's somebody hosting a Ukrainian in their home in a neighborhood of Dubliners in their mid-60s that would know each other from across the fence but never really had a reason to exchange more than uh, pleasantries, all of a sudden now there is a focal point to exchange beyond that maybe uh, social capital in form of network capitals as well, but also financial capitals. We have heard that people kind of pooled money in the neighborhood to enable the Ukrainians that are hosted in that area together to basically um, have a better life, have a good start. And next to that, we did see a lot of cultural exchange emerging in terms of festivities, which I suppose is one of the more beautiful art, um, artifacts of these kind of experiences where Ukrainian folk festivals taking place in neighborhoods um, like Dublin South. I think in Bray, they've seen some of these beautiful Ukrainian folk festivals where it's about the cultural exchange of music, um, foods, traditions. So these are definitely things we see actively taking place in the reshaping of the neighborhoods. But as I said as well, there's also other things taking place currently that are much more, I'd say, nefarious and politically directed when it comes to opening up questions of who is deserving and who's not of our solidarities. And that being causes of last week's riots as well, the question who is deserving and who is not, whilst we could probably all agree that Most of us, if not all humans, are deserving of some form of solidarity or another if they're in need. And even if they're not in need, I suppose they wouldn't mind feeling like they're part of a group that shares solidarity. 
Uh, on that note, I might as well ask Martin to weigh in here. Martin, you already mentioned Yugoslavia before and how the, 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 the stark difference between how Yugoslavian crisis was framed in public narrative versus how was the case with the Syrians. Uh, in your book, uh, you were focused on Easterners' movement across borders, whereas Daniel's work is on Ukrainian refugees. What is, in your opinion, then, the difference in the way each group were perceived and welcomed? And does that change the way we ought to conceptualize uh, the idea of solidarity, the notion of solidarity? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's 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 a good question. I mean, um, I mean, first of all, I think uh, there is a difference between the um, the reception of of, of these groups, um, but it also comes from the. I mean, Ukrainian refugees have not had to apply for asylum, right, because of the temporary protection uh, given by the European Union. So, so basically, I mean. All these people have been allowed to cross borders and uh, and and settle in in the different uh, European member states. Uh, of course, that will expire uh, next year, I think, or in 25 uh, in the spring. So this situation could become different then, right? Uh, uh, but um, but right now, some of the discussions uh, that surrounded the issue of uh, Syrian refugees, especially about, uh, I mean, should they be granted asylum or not, which is still ongoing, right, uh, has simply not been there in the case of uh, of Ukrainian uh, refugees. But that said, there's also uh, a difference in, in the narrative. I mean, there's, um, I mean, perhaps departing from the Danish case, we see... Uh, I mean, a, a very large sort of uh, mobilization and support of Ukrainian refugees uh, that also in many ways exceeds what we saw in in 14-15. I mean, if you drive around the uh, the countryside, you'll see Ukrainian flags on uh, on regular buildings and so on, and uh, businesses and so on, all flagging to show the support. I've never seen a Syrian or an Afghan flag in anywhere in Denmark uh, in, in 15 and so on, right? So this... There's a, a kind of perceived proximity to these people. I mean, they they could be us, right? And and of course, that also shows how the issue of uh, of entitlement and uh, and deservingness and so on also is racialized. I mean, because uh, people feel simply closer to uh, to the Ukrainians. I, I think, right? Um, it's also, I mean, they're simply framed as uh, being uh, much more easy to uh, you know to uh, uh, to fit into the labor market. So the business communities has been extremely supportive in uh, in creating jobs and uh, inviting people in and so on, um, without necessarily you know any evidence that it would be more difficult, uh, including uh, Syrian refugees and so on. But but that said, I'm I'm not sort of I'm not uh, trying to dismiss this kind of solidarity uh, towards the Ukrainians. If anything, I'm. <laughs> I would like to see it expanded uh, towards other uh, refugee groups, right? And that's also kind of the message that uh, that the uh, solidarity movements and so on are coming out with. I mean, uh, what's happening to the refugee is good. Uh, sorry, the Ukrainian refugees uh, is is all good, but we would like to see the same approach towards other uh, uh, refugee groups and and not necessarily having this. Um, distinction between uh, more deserving or closer to us kind of and so on. So I don't think I don't think I would reconceptualize solidarity because I think I would rather emphasize one facet of solidarity which uh, we also underline in the book that solidarity is not equal to humanitarianism for instance uh, for me solidarity is also a political act uh, it's trans- it's transformative it's uh, it's generating political identities and so on and I think that part is worth uh, emphasizing here right uh, 
uh, and and not necessarily i mean the equalizing what happens to the uh, ukrainian refugees with a, a kind of politicized uh, solidarity it 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 could be yes but uh, but i would i would say the reason we need uh, solidarity is exactly because uh, it is uh, contentious it it can speak for social and political transformation and that that's basically what we need to include all people in society Interesting. I mean, uh, do you think we can say we or we can talk about sort of selective solidarity in face of who who is the target group, who is the subject that we are talking about? Definitely, yeah. I would say so. I mean, we already saw that uh, during the refugee crisis where some of the Eastern European countries would not accept uh, asylum seekers, for instance, if they had a Muslim background. The same countries now have been the ones taking in most uh, Ukrainian refugees, right? I mean, uh, more than two million people are living, uh, Ukrainian refugees are living in Poland, for instance, and they would not accept uh, any Muslim uh, asylum seekers in, in 15. Uh, uh, so solidarity is there, right? But it, it's, it's highly selective, but it's also on a state level when we look at the policies and so on. Uh, Um, in, in, in some earlier work I also did together with Oscar, we talked about misplaced solidarity as well, right? I mean, kind of uh, more reactionary right-wing forms of solidarity, uh, constructing a kind of uh, people being in threat, uh, um, pitched against, for instance, uh, foreign workers and so on, you know, uh, this whole uh, British jobs for British workers and so on. So I think we see solidarities in, in many different ways and not all of them are, are progressive some might uh, indeed be regressive and and not necessarily speak for yeah more inclusion in society all right you talked about the the need to expand the what the treatment that we are seeing in the face of uh, ukraine crisis to all sorts of uh, refugees but how can we prevail against obstacles such as growing right-wing populism and extremism I'm not. I'm not sure. I, I mean, I, I would wish I have the answer for that, right? I mean, I think it's uh, it's just as much. Uh, it's not only. It's not an academic question. I mean, it's also a political question, right? And a political project that uh, that we all have to engage in. And and um, Gramsci, the Italian uh, uh, thinker, and so on. Um, I mean, wrote that we also need to carry hope when it's. Uh, most desperate right if we, if we only think about uh, hope and so on when things are going well i mean that's not that's not real hope i mean we need to be able to to see a better future also when uh, challenged the most so right now i mean yeah i think um i think we are seeing some um some developments that 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 uh, definitely are not speaking for more solidarity and uh, and and so on but on the other hand i mean i i, I do believe that uh, these uh, i mean spaces like barcelona and so on uh, offer some kind of uh, of hope and uh, um, and like models for how uh, we could uh, see society uh, developing right and uh, I think all the sort of resources uh, uh, that were mobilized and materialized and so on during uh, the uh, refugee crisis in, in civil society and so on still is there, right? Um, we probably need to expand uh, uh, the the struggle in a way. And now I'm speaking also from personal political, um, my own politics, right? I mean, that I think uh, there's probably a need to not only talk about uh, solidarity in relation to migrants, but also think about uh, The damage done to society by climate changes and and so on, so things. I mean, we probably need to 
to to think more about the transversal solidarities and things that will unite different struggles if we are to see uh, uh, change uh, for the better, in my opinion, in the future. Thank you. Finally, for Daniel, I think you would like to comment on what Martin said. What do you think we can learn about experiences and practice of cosmopolitan solidarity? Well, yeah, first off, I can only agree with Martin, right, that um, we do unfortunately not see that we're moving in that direction of a larger sense of cosmopolitan solidarity. Um, as we do see also more political uh, divides as well as politicization of certain conflicts. And in that sense, if I would say, what can we take from this case of the Ukrainians and European solidarity towards the Ukrainians, I would say, coming from a place of hope that this, as we've seen, is a first step in a legacy of becoming more open and inclusive and less questioning of who deserves and who does not. But I also see that there is a lot of pushback from political directives and um, that barriers are high. However, as my interviewees have shown greatly in their biographies, there is certain elements in lives that transcend one lifetime. And before you know it, maybe the next generation can pick up where we left it and will become one step closer altogether to this idea of cosmopolitan solidarity. On that note, we bring this episode to the end. That was Martin Jorgensen and Daniel Goigoy. I thank them both for the fascinating discussion. And that is it for today. This episode is produced by Urban Political. For a treasure trove of many more urban conversations, please check our archive. I'm Hossein Handia, and we will be back soon. Thanks to you for listening. For more information, visit our website urbanpolitical.podigy.io. Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter.